Greetings to you, friends, from the airwaves, broadcasting to the nation and around the world, coming to you from Nick 1150 AM Radio. This is Blair Hebert, story creator of the Sputnik Satellite Radio Show. Today, we are looking at the character backstory and timeline for Daryl Lang. Part 1. Mud. Blood. Ice. Boiled in water. Rats. Remains. Shock. Fear. Explosions. Headache. Incessant ringing sound. It's okay, Daryl. You're safe now. The nurse sighs and administers another shot of morphine. A bottle of brandy was also left on his bedside table to help with the sleepless nights. Daryl woke up in fits and starts, often wailing from the fear of not being able to see and from the incessant ringing in his ears. He was also tied down to his bed with his left hip and leg shattered and in bandages. If not for the soft voice of the nurse and her consistent reassuring presence, he would have perished from fear alone in a world of hellish memories. It was May 1918. Daryl was recovering from serious shrapnel wounds and shell shock in base hospital number 21 in Nouvelle France. His only memory of arriving in France was the landing on the beaches of Saint-Nazaire. After that, it was just the horrors of the trenches and explosion after explosion. As the weeks went by, Daryl lay in his bed, head bandaged with incessant tinnitus, head ringing like a hammer on an anvil. He could be still for hours, then suddenly begins hyperventilating, convulsing in a fit and comes close to a cardiac arrest. Because of this, he was under constant observation. Luckily for Daryl, an angel of mercy took it upon herself to tend to him and be his constant companion during these crucial days. She never says her name, but he knows her voice and her gentle touch. Some days the voice sounds like his mother, other days his deceased pregnant wife Bonnie. Once, while he was high on morphine, he believed the Blessed Virgin Mary sat with him and wiped the sweat away from his forehead. He became a mess of tears in the bandages, and as he slowly gained conscious awareness, he realized he was severely injured and prepared himself for death as he was sure he could not survive another day. But he did. Eventually, he began to recover. One day, a doctor arrived and removed the bandages from his face. He could see moving shadows, and this gave him hope. He remained on morphine and emptied a bottle of brandy whenever it was available. Daryl was eventually moved to another bed, close to a window, and when it was open, he could smell the flowers of early summer, and this had tremendous soul-soothing effects on his shattered nervous system. To the end of his days, Daryl will keep fresh-cut jasmine in his living space and bring them to anyone who falls into despair. Months go by, and gradually he's sitting up in a wheelchair, listening to the radio. And then he gets to move around to different locations, and even outside, feeling the sun on his face once again, like a warm, moist face cloth before a shave. He's humble to the core, and feels deep gratitude for everything in existence, and more than anything, for just being alive. Daryl A. Lang was born in 1892, and was 26 years old when he arrived in France, near the end of the First World War. He had a normal childhood growing up in Philadelphia at the dawn of the new century. The city was the birthplace of the American Constitution and famous for its elevated train lines and cheesecake. Daryl was especially fond of cheesecake 
and proud of his Philly's advanced rail system, the RTC. He traveled the trolley cars regularly, just for a day's outing while in his teens. He was studying to be an electrical engineer so he could work for the Philadelphia Rapid Transit Company and run a trolley on the tracks one day. He loved his city and its place in history. In 1910, when Darrell was 18, the city exploded in a general strike. The strike was precipitated by an escalating dispute between the RTC and the Amalgamated Association of Street and Electric Railway Employees of America. The strike was in retaliation for the laying off of 173 organized workers. It was politically motivated and had frustrating consequences on the population dependent on the transportation system. The public was resentful for the hike in fares, and the workers vexed for being pawns in a political corruption scandal. It was an angry mess, and left Darrell with a sour taste in his mouth for both the trains and Philly cheesecake. As a result of his dissatisfaction, Darrell left his family home and moved away to Wesleyan University to study electrical and radio engineering in Middleton, Connecticut. It was here he began his study of piezoelectric resonators and oscillators and crystal devices. Focused on his career aspirations and under the direction of leading expert Walter Cady, he immersed himself in radio and telephone technology. As love would have it, Daryl fell madly for his first real girlfriend, also on campus in her second year, a cute young flapper named Bonnie Asher. The Asher clan was an old family name from New London, Connecticut, of Puritan descent. Daryl soon discovered he was not accepted by the family as they were afraid of godless outsiders and the corruption they brought to the tight Puritan community. When they discovered Bonnie was pregnant, the family was outraged, demanded an immediate marriage to avoid scandal. Daryl was alone and confused by this new reality and it caused his studies to suffer and put him on the dean's radar. It did not help that the family hated him and let him know he was a sinner every time they got together. One fateful day, while on an outing in the country, Daryl and Bonnie were having a heated conversation driving in the family car, and had to swerve to avoid a collision. This caused an unexpected rollover when they hit the ditch. Bonnie was thrown from the passenger seat, hit the ground, and went into premature labor. The poor young mother lay in shock, and the baby was unable to breach. When help finally arrived, it was too late for the infant and the young mother later passed away before she could reach the hospital. Daryl was devastated and racked with guilt and shame. To the end of his days, he never mentions her name when recalling the tragic event, as it is just too painful to talk about. Daryl left Connecticut and his studies before he completed his engineering degree, never to return. He hitched a train to the Midwest and began working in the electric power industry as a lineman. He became a boomer, electrifying rural America. Line work was hard physical labor and considered one of the most dangerous professions in existence. Approximately one in three linemen were injured or killed on the job, mostly from electrocution. Often a lineman would finish one job with enough money to live on for several weeks or months before they would boom out to another job somewhere else. Darrell always worked alone and became a drinker at night. He taunted the odds of electrocution in the daytime as a full-time boomer. When America declared war on Germany in April 6, 1917, Daryl, lost in shame and in an endless cycle of work and drinking, knew he was going nowhere, and he made a decision to clean up and get right. 
In a bold move and without much thought or notice to his family, he enlisted in the American Expedition Forces to go overseas to fight the Germans in France. He began his tour of duty with the 80th Division, organized at Camp Lee, Virginia, and was trained in trench warfare. Because he was a boomer by trade, he was immediately selected for the signal detachment and responsible for radio telecommunications. After a tense and rough sea voyage with thousands of other blank faces, he arrived at the front and is led very far forward where the telenet lines are laid down. It is a nightmare ditch of oily water, rats and mud, and is the closest proximity to the enemy trenches. In the quiet of the night, he can hear the Germans talking, sometimes praying for survival. The telenet lines act as an antenna and intercept enemy telegraph and telephone messages by induction through the soil. The ironic truth Daryl soon realized was that both sides used the same telenet lines to listen to each other's communication. Nevertheless, if the lines were broken due to artillery or heavy machinery, he would have to sneak out to determine where the line was broken and make the repair. This went on for months, and he had some difficult missions. One day, he was sent out to find the broken line in a ditch near the enemy front and found it was already repaired by a German lineman who left him a cigarette as his calling card. Daryl wasn't sure what to think of this. What would happen if they met in the dark trench heading up for the same repair? Would they fight to the death to see who gets to fix the wire? Or share a cigarette together in a ditch in no man's land? Strange times. It was here in the far front trenches that Daryl came face to face with his own mortality when he was hit with shrapnel from heavy artillery shells. Lying injured in a bombed out trench, he spent a day and a night under heavy bombardment and falls unconscious before being pulled out of the muck by the Red Cross and transferred to Hospital No. 21. When the armistice is signed in November 11, 1918, Daryl is still in Hospital No. 21, he is walking with crutches and has his vision back. He still suffers from tinnitus and has been told he will walk with a limp for the rest of his life as his left leg is now shorter than his right leg. Returning on a troop ship, sailing back to America before the new year, 1919, Daryl wonders where he will settle and start a new life. In a moment of faith, he asks his inner self to guide him to the best place to land and to recover. An old city immediately comes to mind. New Orleans. When Daryl arrives at Le Vieux Carré, or French Quarter, New Orleans, in the early 1920s, it was mostly a gritty working-class slum where people spoke French as often as English. On North Rampart Street, Daryl found a cheap room on the upper floor of a rooming house. In those days, women would lower baskets to the street so grocers could load them with food and an added pint of gin. Daryl, still struggling to walk with a cane, liked this delivery system and ordered two pints of gin with groceries. For medicinal purposes, of course. His morphine addiction created a constant urge and he attempted to wean himself away with alcohol. His only salvation was rooted in his close call with death and his gratitude to be alive. He survived and was now rebuilding his life as best he could under the circumstances. Every few days he would buy a bunch of fresh-cut jasmine and put them in a fancy vase beside the open window where he sat and watched the locals interact down below. This mundane activity and the sweet-smelling flowers soothed his still-rattled nervous system. 
His every waking hour was hounded by pain and constant ringing in his ears, not to mention constipation and occasional screaming nightmares, which made him somewhat of a celebrity in the red light district. Daryl remained hopeful. He had just met a new friend in Congo Square, who told him about a new wonder drug he could supply him with to replace morphine. It was an excellent replacement for pain management and relieving the dull brain fog, constipation and other side effects of morphine. And apparently, it was not as addictive. Daryl was elated. He had found a new pain medication, and even its feminine name invoked salvation. Her name was Heroin. The Roaring Twenties were a blurry decade for Daryl, as he slowly recovered from his physical injuries. In the steamy heat of the Deep South, he learned to slow his mind down, dream, and observe the world around him. Even with his eyes closed, he could see the light and sound that surrounded him. The heroin kept him pain-free and in a dream state, and he often drifted away on beams of sunlight coming in his window and waves of sound from his radio and the lively street below. It was enjoyable, and he could see frequencies of sound in his imagination. It was at this time he renewed his passion for the science of utilizing piezoelectric crystals, and he began redesigning and modifying a tubeless radio circuit in his mind as an exercise. He was particularly interested in the quest of how to make radio equipment smaller, compact, and portable. The word kept coming to mind. Transistor. The transfer of resistance. He wasn't sure where the word originated from, as the technology hadn't been invented yet. But in his imagination, it represented a new microtechnology he would attempt to design and build. Over the years, he would tinker with the idea of how to and what would be required to build a radio device that could transfer resistance and electronic current without thermonic emissions from one end to the opposite end of the circuit without the diodes of a vacuum tube. In the late afternoon, Daryl would self-mix his medication and doze off to sleep in his chair by the open window in late afternoon and dream of circuitry and radio waves with the odd start and panic of a distant explosion in his memory. He was starting to get right. He liked heroin for its pain relief, but was starting to see that it required a continual use and increase in dosage to get the same results, and once again, he was trapped in a cycle of addiction. As months went by and his mobility increased, he began making his way down to Congo Square in the evening to listen to impromptu jazz bands playing Dixieland and a new music style, swing jazz. He would sit where he could and watch the locals dance, relatively pain-free, high on heroin. He found this to be an uplifting event, even with the belief he would never dance again as he did in his youth. He was particularly enamored by a young couple who were madly in love and spread their joy all around them when they danced together. No one was immune to the rapturous expression of just being together. Daryl had a favorite park bench where he liked to sit every evening when it was available. After a while, he noticed it was always available by the time he arrived, as if someone had been saving it for him. It made it easy for him just to land at the same spot every night, exhausted from the walk, and he was grateful for the gift. With his eyes closed, he would listen to the band and watch the sound waves oscillate in his mind. When he felt inspired, he would squint open his eyes and watch the dancers and the beautiful prisms of light surrounding them and how it flowed outward like waves around the musicians and other dancers. The young couple in love had a particularly brilliant aura 
and this infused his whole being with a tingling sensation of joy and mystic wonder. Like osmosis, their love infused his own sense of self-love as it bubbled up in tears, lifting off the heavy burden of his dependent love affair with heroin. Daryl was becoming aware of his condition as a drug addict, and not by choice. Grateful for the strength and faith of his beautiful mind, he knew he was worthy of more. Like most, he just wanted to be content and happy in life. He finally understood René Descartes' famous quote, Cogito ergo sum, I think, therefore I am. Like Descartes, he could see his intelligent mind ready and willing to get back in the world of creation and production. He was his I am self once more and ready to emerge and climb back into his seat at the table of life. As his mind drifted back into the square, he opened his eyes to watch the young couple now dancing before him. In front of his bench, it was the young Swiss immigrant and Creole girl from Treme neighborhood who would meet every evening in Congo Square to dance. As soon as they touched hands, they immediately bonded and once again fell in love. Daryl was transfixed on their aura. They soon became the celebrities of the square as local folks came every evening just to watch them dance. The band's tone would elevate and if seated they would rise to the occasion whenever the couple swirled past them in bliss. As everyone expected, they were soon engaged to be married and everyone from Congo Square was invited to St. Augustine's Church created by free blacks in 1841. A large part of the community came to witness the blonde-haired, blue-eyed, almost pink-white Swiss immigrant and the local dark-tanned, radiant Creole girl exchanged their vows. To the old folks and everyone who attended, they symbolized unity and the pure love of a bonded pair. Daryl attended the wedding, and in his mind's eye he could see the frequency of love as it swirled around the couple and weaved among the witnesses of the marriage. At the reception held in Congo Square, Daryl was medicated and after a few drinks nodded off to sleep and woke up late on his park bench. Everybody was gone home, and he was alone, except for a few alley cats, and a stranger seated in an adjacent bench, watching him. Their eyes met, and he could see it was a well-dressed middle-aged woman, and he instinctively knew she was the person saving the bench for him every evening. As he picked himself up, stretched, flexed his knee, and rotated his hips a few times, he began the slow walk back to his room on Rampart Street. He glanced back at the adjacent bench for a final look and saw that she was gone. End of Part 1 Thank you for listening to Part 1 of the Backstory and Timeline of Daryl Lang. Please join us next week to discover who was the mystery person who is saving Daryl's favorite bench for him in Congo Square. Meet his new mentor and dear friend who helps him kick his addiction to heroin and alcohol and revive his body from constant pain. Witness the new Daryl as he reinvents himself and starts a new business to travel the country by train, selling his radio consulting services across America with his Swiss protege, Thomas Albright, and the day he meets Nick Nicholas, his future partner at Nick 1150 Radio. Witness Daryl become the wisdom keeper and compassionate hero acquainted with suffering and sorrow, and how he comforts and inspires everyone who meets him. This is Blair Hebert signing off till next week's conclusion of the Daryl Line Backstory and Timeline. Au revoir de la vieux carie.